Okay. So how many of you guys were here last week? And you came back. That is so surprising and amazing to me. Okay, so last week I was speaking. We're in the middle of, of, a, of a series of lessons called This Is Us. And I was asked to talk about worship. And worship, like I said last week, is too big of a topic to really cover all of it. I think that that would take us every Sunday for quite some time to really look at the complexity and the beauty and the wonderment of worship. So we had to choose some topics to, to focus on to try to cover it over the next two weeks. So last week we talked about worship being personal, powerful, and public. What we're really looking at is from the, the standpoint of what is worship really? What is it about? And we were looking at it from the personal, how do I worship angle. With me? Last week, that's what we talked about. This week, what I wanted to try to do is to move away from looking at it so much as an individual worshiper, although we'll never truly leave that behind, but I want to try to look at what it means to worship together as a group, from the group perspective. Pardon me, I need to drink a little bit because all this singing and then preaching on top of it, I'm getting kind of dry. Thank you. Okay, here's the question I want to start with. Does God really want or need us to worship together? Wow. I'm glad you... I, I agree with you. Anybody else agree with him? Yeah, yeah, I agree with him, but why? Does everybody universally agree that that's true? Do you know people who disagree with it? Have you heard people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian? Well, what's up with that? Do they have merit? Is that true? COVID really exposed what people thought about that question, didn't it? I've talked to Christians from all kinds of churches, not just within churches of Christ. I've talked to Catholic churches. I've talked to... Uh, just a whole broad swath of churches, not just from this area, but people from churches all across the United States. And what they've all found, and we saw it here too, is that during COVID, it's almost like God grabbed the tree and shook it, and a lot of things fell off. And we found that when we came back together, we saw that there were people here with tears of joy, glad to be back together for the first time. Because they needed the fellowship. They needed to be together with other Christians. And we found a lot of our people who haven't been back. All these years later, they must have concluded at some level that they didn't need to come to worship together. I think that if you talk to some of them, many of them would say, well, I just don't think I have to do that to please God. Are they right? Do we have any information in the Bible that would point us in one direction or the other? If God doesn't want or need us to worship together, I'm sorry, if God does want or need us to worship together, what does he want from us as a group when we meet on Sundays? Or really, any day of the week? So have I given you some good questions to think about? I think these are good questions and pertinent because we live in a time where people challenge, well, why do I need to go to church? I think that actually I've grown up in my whole life. I don't think that's a new question. I think we've been dealing with that for a lot of years, haven't we, Bob? But it seems like it's even more front burner right now. All the stats show that churches are shrinking. Worship on Sundays are, are shrinking. Now, there's a, there's a counterbalance to that. There seems to be more of an interest in Christianity in some segments of our society, but not all of them are interested in coming to church. So what does God want us to do? Does he want us to get together to worship like we're doing this morning? And if so, what does he want from this worship? How is it supposed to look? What are the things we're supposed to be doing? That's what I'm going to try to tackle in this lesson. I'm going to do the best I can for you. We're going to spend some of our time, maybe most of our time, out of the book of Hebrews. 
We're going to skip around a little bit and look at some other verses. But if you've got a, a Bible handy and you want to flip over to Hebrews, uh, you'll, you'll get ahead of me a little bit. Let's look at chapter 12. We're going to start in chapter 12, verse 28, <clears throat> and see if we can maybe find some answers to those questions about worship. It says there, it says, do you see what we've got? An unshakable kingdom. And do you see how thankful we must be? Not only thankful, but brimming with worship. Deeply reverent before God. For God is not an indifferent bystander. Okay. How many of you guys are familiar with that verse? A couple of you, not that many. Well, let's, let's piece this apart for a second here. Did you notice the pronouns that he used? They were plural, weren't they? We and us. Do you think that the writer of Hebrews is talking about us as a group or us as individuals in this passage? Could be both. But what he wrote just before this really makes those pronouns jump out at me. And it really does sound like he's talking to us as a group. So the question I would ask from this verse is, what should our response to the unshakable kingdom we've been transferred into be? It's not a trick question. It's right there in the text. What should our response to the unshakable kingdom we've been transferred into be? Say it again. Yes, thankfulness and what else? And worship. We must be thankful and brimming with worship. Gratitude and worship are not parts of a recipe. They are cause and effect. I'll say that again. Gratitude and worship are not parts of a recipe. We, we take gratitude and then we put together worship and we come out with something that God approves of. They are cause and effect. Gratitude for an unshakable kingdom causes us to explode in worship. And that's what God wants. I, I was studying this out and I found a, uh, an article, that the title of it I'm using here as a, as a quote. It's called, Gratitude is the Stem Cell of Worship. Gratitude is the stem cell of worship. How many of you guys know what stem cells are? Yeah, they are where other cells come from. Worship comes from gratitude. Stem cells serve as a repair system for the body. Did you know that one? Did you know that gratitude kind of works the same way? It helps repair the body. The body of Christ. You see, gratitude draws us. Any relationship, let me put it in the negative real quick. Do you know of any relationship that thrives when gratitude dwindles or dies? Think about marriages. When the gratitude between spouses is gone, what happens to the marriage? Gets worse, doesn't it? People drift apart. What happens whenever the gratitude is there? It gets better. They get drawn together. And the way that gratitude works, and we get it from this verse and from some others, is gratitude draws us to God. And it draws us to other God worshipers. Gratitude draws us to be with other people who feel the same gratitude and need a place and other people to share it with and express it with. Again, whenever I was watching our church come back together after COVID, finally they, they lifted the sanctions and allowed us to get back together, I saw people that, with tears in their eyes that could not wait. They were grateful to get back together. Did you see that too? How many of you felt that same sense of gratitude? Finally, I can be around other people who love God too. Finally, I can get back where... We're singing songs together. We're encouraging each other. And maybe we couldn't even say why it meant so much. Maybe we couldn't even put it into words. But so many of us found that, man, there was something huge missing whenever I couldn't make it to be with other believers. 
See, I think gratitude drives us to want to be closer to God and closer to other God worshipers. Around here, and a lot of churches are the same way, we tend to focus our attention sometimes on the elements of a worship service and we neglect the heart of worship. You know what I'm talking about with the elements of worship? You probably noticed that we have a kind of a formula around here on Sunday mornings, right? What happens first? Coffee, right? Coffee, that's, that's first. Because that's definitely biblical. We can definitely find verses that say go get coffee first. And then the worship team starts to sing. And people start making their way in here to sing. And there's an order to worship. And we go through those. Those are the different elements that I'm talking about. And we work really hard to try to make sure that those things all happen and happen well. But sometimes I can focus too much on the elements of worship and lose touch with the gratitude that drives worship. Whenever I do that, that's not good. We work hard to have the best music, the most inspirational lessons, greeters, coffee, parking attendants, all those things. And those things are great. I'm not shooting those things down. I'm not saying that they don't matter. I'm just saying they don't produce in and of themselves. They do not produce the worship that God wants. They might produce the worship that we want. They might produce the worship that our guests might want. But that's not necessarily the same thing as the worship that God wants. And I think we can get off target if we view our worship together from a consumer perspective. You know what I'm saying when I say consumer perspective? Whenever I'm trying to have a worship service that I want, or people might rather, uh, or what people might want, rather than focusing on having an expression of gratitude, which is what God wants. Am I splitting hairs? See, I don't think that there's anything wrong with the way we're doing church. I don't think there's wrong to, to do it other ways than the way we do it. But I think we're missing the mark if we lose gratitude. Or we're looking for something in the wrong place if we're expecting that if we have all this great uh, sound, you know, wonderful music and lights and a pristine building and all these things working, if we expect that those will make us worship better, I think we're sorely disappointed because the heart of worship isn't those things. The heart of worship is gratitude. You notice that we call this a worship service. Have you ever thought about the irony of that name? Worship service. What does that imply? Somebody is serving somebody with worship. Would you agree with that? Worship means somebody is serving somebody with worship. Who is it that's getting served? Ah, you're ahead of me. Should be God. But sometimes I think we come in thinking in terms of, uh, I want to be served. Are we worshiping God or is he worshiping us? Did I come this morning to serve and express my gratitude to God? Or did I come... To be served. It's a big difference. One is what God wants from us and the other one takes us in the wrong direction. Here's a quote from that article that I mentioned. And I'm going to break this up and comment in between. This guy says, a worship service is not primarily about what we receive from God. But what we give to God. Now think about it for a second. Worship service. We're coming to serve God by worshiping Him. That's, that's what you said, and I agree with it. I think that's the way that that's supposed to be understood. But if I come to be served, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to be critical of anything or anyone who doesn't please me or serve me the way that I want to be served. Let that sink in for a second. If I came to be served, I'm going to be critical of anything or anyone who doesn't serve me the way that I want to be served. 
What if we don't sing the songs that I like? I'm going to have a problem with that if I'm looking to be served. What if the preacher doesn't preach what I want to hear? I can go on down the list. But my attitude and what I'm doing here, what I'm focusing on, if I'm looking for me, I'm going to have a problem. By the way, if I came to please people, I'm only going to be grateful when they're pleased. Boy, you want to, do you really want to attach your wagon to that plow? Man, why would you give any other human the ability to control you that way? I'll say that again. Why would you give any other human the ability to control you that way? You want to talk about a good definition of codependency. Whenever I have to have your approval to feel good about myself, that's a form of slavery. And it's a hideous lie that drives us to dark places, not to bright and light places. So finishing up this guy's quote, he says, what should fuel our worship is not some emptiness that we come seeking to have filled but a fullness that cannot contain itself and must be expressed. Let me read it again. What should fuel our worship is not some emptiness that we came seeking to have filled. Will you get something out of coming and worshiping the proper way? Serving out of gratitude. Oh, absolutely you will. But primarily, a worship service is not about what we receive from God, but what we give to God. And what should fuel our worship is not some emptiness that we came seeking to have filled, but a fullness that's already there, a gratitude that cannot contain itself and must be expressed. That fullness, according to the Hebrew writer, comes from understanding what we've been given. I noticed that in that passage that we read out of Hebrews 12, it doesn't say that your gratitude should come from the fact that you've been saved from hell. You're not going to be, born, be burned forever and, and tortured over here. Instead, you're going to be saved and go to heaven. Is there a hell? Yes. Jesus talked about it. That's another lesson. I believe there's a hell. I believe more people will end up experiencing that reality than who find their, their way to a faithful relationship in the kingdom of God and are saved from it. I believe that because Jesus said that. I'm not saying that those, those things aren't true. But what should fuel our worship is a gratitude, according to the Hebrew writer, for this unshakable kingdom that we've been given. Have you thought about Are there any kingdoms here on the earth today that you think of that are unshakable? Not one. Not us. Watch any cable news program and the whole, all these kingdoms are so shaky. They can topple with the easiest little things. What happens to the people whenever a government or a regime crashes, where it's shaken to the ground? Those people suffer. That doesn't happen to those that are members of God's kingdom. Because we have a king who is forever and a kingdom that's unshakable. It's been growing for 2,000 years. It is still growing. And by God's grace, we've been transferred into this kingdom. And I would love to spend the rest of the time talking about all the things that we should be getting excited about, about the kingdom of God. But that might take me further away from the topic that I was supposed to teach on. So if you do not yet know what is so wonderful and magical that would spark this kind of gratitude about the kingdom of God, then you know something you need to study and to look into. And I'll be glad to help you with any resources or to talk with you about that later if you want to. But the kingdom of God, whenever I started studying it, changed me. Changed me. Changed the reason I did things. Changed how I looked at things for the better. The fullness comes from understanding what we've been given. Okay, so there's a passage just before the one I read in Hebrews that kind of goes into this, what is this kingdom that we should be so grateful for? It doesn't exhaust the topic, but it sets the stage for the, the one we just read. 
So I want to go back and put that first statement in context by reading what he had, the argument he had just made. We're going to start Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18. We're going to read through uh, 24. He says this, the Hebrews writer says, You have not come, as the people of Israel came, to what you can feel. Now, he's not talking about emotional feelings here. He's talking about touching in a physical, dynamic way. You haven't come, as the people of Israel came, to what you can feel, to Mount Sinai, with its blazing fire, the darkness and the gloom, the storm, the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of a voice. When the people heard the voice, they begged not to hear another word, because they could not bear to hear the order which said, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling and afraid. Do you know what the Hebrew writer is talking about? This is in Exodus. What's happened is God has pulled Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and he's making them his people. They've come to Mount Sinai, thousands of them, divided up into their tribes. They've gathered here, and there is a worship service there. And it is awe-inspiring and awful. And they could not get close to God. It was so shaking to be in God's presence, even at a distance, that even Moses was scared to death. Anybody would be grateful if that was the way our church services were? Yeah, none of us. And that's the, that's the point that the author of, of uh, Hebrews is making. And look at the contrast, because what's going on here is the Hebrew writer is contrasting two different kind of worship services. He says in verse 22, instead, you have come to Mount Zion. You didn't go to Mount Sinai. We haven't gone to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, there was all these rules that told us, you do not measure up. You're not welcomed in here. You can't be in touch with me because you've got a sin issue. You're not like me. In fact, if you try to come to me on your terms, I will kill you on the spot. That's what was going on at Mount Sinai. But we haven't come to Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, with thousands of angels. You have come to the joyful gathering of God's firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, who is the judge of all people, and to the spirits of good people made perfect. You have come to Jesus who arranged the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that promises much better things than does the blood of Abel. There are obviously some deep theological things that we could dig into in this passage and we can't do it today. But we can at a glance see that there is a huge difference between these two worship services that we're talking about here. The one that they had at Mount Sinai and check it out at Mount Sinai. The Israelites had all the glitz and glamour that you could ever want in any church service. They had a huge crowd. They had a sound and light show. And the preacher was God himself. And they could not get close to God. But we have come to Mount Zion. It says here, we've come to the city of the living God. We're not standing at a distance. We've been brought inside. We've been transferred into his kingdom. We get to be in the presence of God. Not because we earned it. Because Jesus paid a price to open up the door so that we could be brought in. And that is so much bigger than just not being destroyed or tortured in hell. This is about a privilege and about a party. See, our worship together is just an extension of the worship that's going on on the other side of the veil in the heavenly realm. Remember you, again, another deep theological thing here, but there are many scriptures that talk about Jesus being revealed, about the veil being opened and people seeing what's really happening. Remember where Stephen's being stoned? What happens? He sees this veil that had 
separated God's realm from our realm. And he sees another court going on besides the Sanhedrin or the people with the stones that are going after him. And Jesus is sitting there saying, you're my boy. They're saying you're wrong, but I got you and you are right. And see, I believe all around us right now what the Hebrew writer is telling us and why our Sunday mornings are so significant is because we are joining every Sunday morning right now a party that's in progress. A party that is in progress right now. We only get to do it for a couple of hours at a time. And then we got to go back to making a living and taking care of the cares of this world and working in the field. But there's a party going on, a worship service going on, and we're just tapping into it this morning. We're right now in the presence of angels, this verse just told us. And this one is particularly motivational for me. We're in the presence of all the Christians that have gone before us who are now made perfect. I didn't think I'd get emotional whenever I said that, but I'm thinking of my grandma. I'm thinking of my dad. Were they perfect people? No. That word perfect is the Greek word teleos. It means mature. It means complete. How many people do you know who struggled to serve the Lord who are now gone? This verse tells us that this morning we are tapping into that worship party when we get together and those people are there already in that party. And they're, not only are their sins forgiven, but they've been made complete. They've been made whole. In another place in Hebrews, Hebrews 12.1, the Hebrew writer just describes that crowd of faithful Christians who've gone before us as a cloud of witnesses. A cloud of witnesses that are cheering for us to finish this race like they have. Because every one of us here struggles with sin. Every one of us struggles with sin. Sin that we hate and we don't know why we keep giving into it, but we just keep, we're like bent and we keep getting given into this. And we might be getting better, but we're not there yet. But there's coming a day when we will be perfected. When we're on the other side, or if Jesus comes back and gets us. And so this cloud of witnesses are cheering for us. Don't give up, Mark. Don't give up. Man, look, if I can make it, if I'm here, you want to be here. And the most powerful worship services you've ever been a part of are just a, an aroma, a little taste. You ever been someplace wherever you smell the food and it is so intoxicating and you want that meal? Chris and I were in Biloxi, Mississippi a long time ago, and we were driving around. It was a sunny, warm, balmy, late winter day, early spring day, and we're driving down the main drag in Biloxi, Mississippi. Not a clue where we're going. It's in the days before GPS. We got the windows down, and wow, what is that? You remember that smell? We literally rolled all the windows down, and we're driving by smell. I don't know if you've ever tried that. It's tricky. <laughs> it is tricky. But we found where the smell was coming from. We found this little restaurant off to the side. It was a 300-some-odd-year-old building Jefferson Davis had once owned, and I don't think they rehabbed it at all since Jeff owned the place. And it was a French restaurant with all these stars and names I couldn't produce, so we had to eat there. And I'm telling you, it was good. It was real good. And whenever we have a worship service, that is fueled by gratitude with even the smallest concept of the party that we're joining into, we smell the age to come. Because as citizens of this kingdom, there is coming a day, that age has already started for us. And one day, the present evil age, the Bible tells us, will end. And what will be left is this age. And we'll be surrounded by all of our loved ones, by Jesus and the apostles, all of these humans that we knew now made perfect, complete. You and I will be the best versions of ourselves. And we'll be in the presence of God. That makes me pretty grateful. Because I can think right now the last time I did the most embarrassing sin. How many of you can think of the last embarrassing sin you just made?
that would not qualify you to go to heaven, would not qualify you to be in the kingdom of God. And yet here we stand right now. If you close your eyes for just a second, do that for me. Close your eyes just for a second. And let the Hebrew writer take you in your, in your mind's eye beyond the veil just for a second. Can you see and visualize Mount Zion? You didn't come to Sinai to hear how bad you were. You come to Zion where you've already been accepted, where you've already been brought in, and there is so much more to come. Can you see the faces of those that you loved who are faithful and who've left and have already gone there? Can you imagine the angels? And can you imagine the praise and the fellowship and the wonderment of being in the city of God and in God's presence? And to see Jesus with your own eyes and have him know your name. To have him care for you. Okay, you can open up your eyes again. What should our worship be like? Worship should be about gratitude, shouldn't it? And gratitude is obvious. You ever been around someone who's totally ungrateful? If you've been around a teenager, you've, you've probably experienced this at some point. Sorry, teens. Uh, I'm sure you girls are, are not at all like this. But if you've been around someone that's ungrateful, it's pretty obvious, right? And it's pretty repelling. Have you been around someone that was grateful? And isn't it drawing? And it's really obvious. You can tell whenever someone is grateful. It feels like something. It looks like something. What should our Sunday mornings together look and feel like? Do they presently? At times, I believe they do. In pockets, I believe they do. But I think there's still room for us to grow because we can lose focus, we can make it about us, and we can lose our gratitude or let it start to slip a little bit. So we have uh, these different ministries here at Greater Alton, all to help us try to function better as a church, to serve people and so forth. And I am the head of something we call the Great Assemblies Ministry. The idea of a Great Assemblies is what we're doing this morning, to try to make it great. Make sure that all everything clicks together and that it's a wonderful, that we're just trying to knock down the obstacles that get in the way of worship so that we come together and we have the richest experience. But I wonder if we wouldn't be better served if we changed the name of the Great Assembly Ministries to the Grateful Assemblies Ministry. Because if we switch that over, it's not about what the worship team can do. It's not about the communion guys or the preacher. It's about us coming with gratitude. Gratitude that is welling up inside us that has to find a place to be expressed. What kind of a worship service would that be like? Ah, that would be what we should shoot for. So, Grateful Assemblies. Let's describe them real quick. I'm going to try to finish this up here. Grateful Assemblies are, number one, they're corporate. They're corporate. What do I mean by corporate? It's a group activity. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We were added to the body. We're living stones in a temple. Like uh, Drew said in his communion, we need each other. We were designed in this new humanity to fit together and to work together and to connect together. Here's a description out of Acts 2 of the first church and what this corporate worship that they had looked like. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received in their, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a description of a grateful assembly. This first church, they understood we've got a kingdom and a king. God accepts us. Really? Like the Hebrew writer is talking about? Yeah. And what did it produce in them? What were their services like? Well, first of all, they had an incredible sense of we. Do you see that in here? As Americans, we have an incredible sense of me. If we're going to grow in our faith, we have got to abandon this me, narcissistic orientation that is just so pervasive in our society, and we're going to have to scrap that for a more biblical first century model of we. We have to move from me to we. Even the Lord's Prayer. We have uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Doesn't Jesus talk in the plural? And how many times do we naturally read that, forgive me of my sins as I forgive? And of course there's the personal application, but we should never make that personal application by losing the we that is stitched into this new life that we've been given. And these, this, when they got together, they were devoted to some things, some key things, and they were devoted to them together. Devoted, the Greek word that gets translated into the English word devoted, carries two main thoughts with it. Committed. How many people think devoted is committed? Sounds like a synonym, right? In English it might be, but this Greek word also puts in parallel with it affection. See, I could be committed to some things that I have no affection for. Taking vitamins on an empty stomach. I can be committed to taking my medicines and have no affection for it. I can be committed to exercise and have no affection for it. Devotion dials it up because there's not just commitment, but there's an affection. And look at what they were devoted to. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, communion, and prayer. What do you notice about our Sunday morning services? Do you see those four happening here? I'm hoping you do, because that is our design and intent. I mean, that's what we're shooting for. But we're not just trying to follow a formula. We're actually trying to develop devotion to these things. I know it's odd for us to pray together the way we do after communion. But how else do we learn to develop a devotion to prayer? I know it's odd having so many different people speak and, and, and preach at us, but how else do we develop a devotion to hearing the Word of God? And the first century church did it together, and we're trying to pursue the same thing. Not because we're trying to achieve some sort of a, of a liturgy, that it, like, a, like a recipe that puts us at some place. We're trying to be devoted, and to be devoted out of gratitude Because if I'm grateful, I'm very curious about what the apostles are teaching. If I'm grateful for what God's done, I'm not trying to earn his love. I'm trying to love him back. So I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about his teachings. I want to know more about what he told the apostles to tell us to do in church. I don't want to miss Sunday mornings. If I'm grateful, I don't want to miss the chance to have... Uh, I don't want to miss the chance to have communion with you guys and with Jesus. I don't want to miss the chance to pray and to hear you guys praying. You follow me? The early church met together daily. Why? Should we start having church like this every day? Awfully quiet in here. (laughs) That'd be a bit much, wouldn't it? 
Did you know historically that the early church didn't continue on meeting daily? It seems to have been for a period of time. But why would they do it daily? We have a hard time, some of our members here have a hard time doing it monthly. Why? I'm sure that there are more answers, deeper answers than what I'm going to give you, but I got one guess in particular. One guess is their gratitude for the kingdom was so rich they couldn't contain it. They had such a sharp contrast between the life that they had lived and this new one that they had found with with Jesus as king. And it was welling up inside them and they needed a place to express it. So where else would they be? And I also think they wanted everyone else in town to see how devoted they were to this new king and his kingdom. And that gratitude and devotion drew them together, drew them together with God, drew them together with each other, and it drew other people to their worship services. They were meeting, obviously, in the temple, we're told. We can also assume they were meeting in people's houses. And we know not every person came to every meeting. That would be impossible. But they were putting it on display, and they didn't have great worship music. They didn't have a band. They didn't have a building always. They couldn't fit them all together. They were probably not very slick in the way they put together things. But something made an impact on the world around them. I'm going to put one of my bets down on their gratitude and their devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to communion, and the prayers. And the Lord added to their number daily. A grateful assembly, grateful assemblies are are corporate, something that we do together. Two, grateful assemblies are conductive. Conductive, what do I mean? Grateful worshipers pave the way for Jesus to join them. Grateful worshipers in grateful assemblies pave the way for Jesus to join them. So they're conductive. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. Are we gathered together in Jesus' name today? I'm not great at math, but are there more than two or three here? Did Jesus tell the truth? What does that mean for where he is right now? He's here with us. Let that sink in for a second. If you're having trouble with your gratitude for this worship service that we have on Sunday mornings, think for just a second, this is where I get to be in Jesus' presence. There may be other places where I can go and find two or three together. We do it on Wednesday night with the worship team practice, don't we? We do this in small groups at different times. But there's something about this large group that is unique. And I know that Jesus promises to be with us. Grateful assemblies are conductive. They pave the way way for Jesus to join them. Check out what's said in Psalms 68.4. It says, sing to God, make music to praise his name, make a highway for him to ride through the deserts. The Lord is his name, celebrate in his presence. One of the most natural expressions of gratitude is to sing, is to sing together. The psalmist here says, praise is a highway. We build a highway for God when we sing and praise His name together. Come on, now this is huge. Are you with me? We've just been doing this this morning. I, I, as, as a worship leader, I'm always talking to people about the heart that they sing with. I know we don't all have the same physical tools to sing with, but that gratitude should be there. In each one of us. And when there's gratitude, how can you help but not to sing and to let it out? And it makes a highway for God to join us. And it's a celebration. We just sang the song this morning, God is here. God is here, dwelling in the praise of his people. 
God is near, healing broken hearts with His touch. As we gather to worship His name, He is riding on the wings of our praise. I believe, I believe that God is here. That song comes from this verse. And we sang it together. Do we believe it? If we believe it, how do you not sing? In Hebrews 13.5, the Hebrew writer says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess His name. Fruit reveals the character of its source, doesn't it? If I stumble, I'm walking through a bunch of trees and I see apples. I'm probably fairly safe to assume that these are apple trees. If I look up on, uh, I see a pear hanging off a branch. Would it be rational to think that that's a pear tree? Yeah. If I'm not praising Jesus openly... What's that fruit? What does that fruit tell me about the heart? I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm not trying to call anybody out specifically or hurt anybody's feelings. It's the last thing I want to do. But I want to share with you, if you're not singing, and I'm not worried about your mechanics, I'm worried about your heart, but if you can't get brought into a worship service to sing with us whenever we're openly professing and praising His name, I think it's fair for me to say you need to check your heart. Examine it and see what's in there. Is there really gratitude in there? Have you lost the gratitude? Have you lost touch with it? See, grateful assemblies are conductive. We pave the way for Jesus to join us and we sing And we make a highway for Him. And in this singing, we are openly professing praises to His name. And it's the fruit of the lips. It's the fruit of a grateful heart. And that's the the worship I think God wants from us. The last point. Grateful assemblies are considerate. Grateful assemblies are considerate. Grateful worshipers think about what others need and what they can bring to the party. What they themselves can bring to the party. Not what they can get from others. Grateful assemblies are considerate. How many times have I come to church on a Sunday morning with everything else on my mind except you guys? Too many. And I've changed that over the last several years. I get up extra early. And I have a worship time and a study time, whether I'm preaching or not, before I leave and I get here an hour early, before church starts, to get with the worship team. And what do we do, guys, when we get together? We're trying to to aim at this being considerate. I'm thinking about, I've learned, I've been taught, I've been led to think about you guys. Not in a passing sort of a way, but in a deeply considerate, purposeful kind of way. And when the worship team gets together, we talk about how to serve you, don't we? Sometimes we specifically say, hey, this person is going through something hard that person, this is only their, if they come today, this will be the second time they've come. Let's make sure that they feel welcome. You know, different things like that. We are trying to be considerate. Where do we get this from? Well, first thing that I want to show you is out of Philippians 2, 3, where Paul says, do nothing from selfish or empty, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. See, I can come to church and be critical and ungrateful and think about who's going who's gonna to say hi to me. 
Who's going to do? Are they going to sing a song I like? Are they going to try and get me to pray out loud in a group? We can get critical about a lot of different things, can't we? But that goes away if we are obedient to this verse about considering others as more important than myself. There's another verse, Hebrews 10. I told you we'd spend a lot of time in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, he says, Let us think about each other and help each other to show love and do good deeds. That Greek word for think about each other is a complicated to pronounce katanoimen, something like that. It's a specific word that means a focused, well-thought-out, premeditated consideration of other people. In other words... We're supposed to think that way about each other, not in a passing way. We are supposed to deeply consider what's in your best interests and how we can help each other show love and good deeds. If you're this morning, if you're getting, if you're the one who doesn't want to sing, you might be offended by the way that I'm, I'm tackling that topic this morning, but I want to assure you, I'm trying to help you show love and do good deeds. I'm trying to help you find that gratitude that will well up inside you and need the other members of the body to express it in its fullness. And man, do we have some freedom in this? Wow, we could do church a lot of different ways and not mess it up if we've got gratitude. And we can't do church well enough ever if we don't have gratitude. But to get there, we're going to have to be considerate and to think about uh, each other and how to help each other show love and good deeds. He goes on, he says, you should not stay away from the church meetings. Well, of course not. If I'm going to go someplace where people are deeply thinking about how to help me, why would I want to stay away? Better yet, I've got a chance to help somebody else, which shows my gratitude to God. See, God already loves me, even me. More, He can't love me more. He can't. The cross proves that. But I can love Him more. I can get better at returning His love. And it may be pathetic. But the best I've got, he appreciates every little bit of it. And whenever we get together, I can be considerate of you and I can think about how to help you and I would never want to stay away. Whenever I'm thinking like that. He says, you should not want to stay away from church meetings as some are doing, but you should meet together and encourage each other. Encourage means to put courage into people. Anybody here in a fight? Fighting for your faith all week long. Hard times. Persecution. You're dealing with it, right? But it takes courage to keep moving forward whenever you're under the gun. And wherever we get together, we can encourage somebody else to not give up. Remember that cloud of witnesses cheering for us? Don't quit now. Don't quit now. You're worshiping together. Think about it. Visualize it. You're at Mount Zion. You've got an invitation to the party. You guys are just joining in. It's in progress. Don't quit now. God will finish what He started in you. Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. You are going to make it. And you're going to make a difference so don't stay away from the church meetings as some are doing, but you should meet together and encourage each other. Do this even more as you see the day coming. If I'm thinking about me and what I want to get from the worship service, frankly, I'm thinking about the wrong person. The church doesn't gather to worship me. The minute that this church begins to, to gather to worship me, then we will sing all the songs that I like. And they'll probably be by James Taylor. I'm just telling you. That's, that's my groove. And before you accuse me of it, I want to let you know, and the worship team knows this, not every song that we sing on Sunday morning, I pick them out. I don't always pick out the ones I like. 
there are many songs that I sing that I just don't care for. Just not my particular brand of tea. But they work. They work for some of you. See, I get to stand up here, and you know what I'm doing, and you'll, you'll catch me looking at you. I make eye contact with you guys because I want you guys to, I want to draw you in. And I get to see your responses. And I want you to know we're in this together. We talk about this on the worship team too. But I, I, I didn't, I don't expect the church to worship me. So if that's the case, why would I complain whenever the church does something or needs something that I don't like? That doesn't go my way. I'm happy to sing a song that I don't like if it helps you get there on a Sunday morning. I hope that you're grateful to God and you'll sing a song you don't like if it'll help your brother or sister to get there on a Sunday morning. I hope that you're grateful enough that you'll pray honestly and openly with someone on a Sunday morning rather than abstaining and sitting back. Because your prayer might put courage into someone that you're praying with. I could go on and on and on down the line with these things, but I think you get my point and I'm running out of time. If I give in to the selfish focus, what's in it for me, I don't like this, I wish this was this way, I'm critical, my gratitude will be weak or maybe even non-existent. I'll be more likely to discourage people than to encourage them. And you know what? I'm going to have a hard time being devoted to church services and events. My attendance is going to start becoming very irregular whenever my focus is on me. But if I express my gratitude for the unshakable kingdom that I've been transferred into by thinking deeply about other people like we just saw we're commanded to do, being considerate, I'm going to want to be with the church all the time. Because I'll know that I have something God wants me to give out of my gratitude for him. And it might be nothing more than an encouraging word. It might be just helping someone feel welcomed, feel like they're at home. It might be just a smile, a word, a look, a touch. It could be more significant than that, too. It could be a hug. Jim makes me hug him every Sunday. I don't know if you guys notice that or not, but we got a thing going on here. <laughs> But it encourages both of us, doesn't it? I shouldn't underestimate the power of that hug. I shouldn't underestimate the power of that kind, thoughtful word. Or just noticing someone. Or being willing to stop and to talk. Or maybe to stop talking. For some of us to go too long. I shouldn't underestimate the power of it. This is the last verse I want to leave you with this morning. It's again out of Hebrews. It's earlier in the letter. It's chapter 3, verse 13. We're commanded there, he says, instead, encourage each other every day. As long as it's called today. Why? So that none of you may become insensitive to God because of sin's deception. We can all become insensitive to God. It happens to me from time to time. Does it happen to you? Sin is deceptive. It can make us... The opposite of considerate. It can make us inconsiderate. It can make us narcissistic and self-focused. But we're commanded to encourage each other daily to help fight for each other, to keep us on focus. And whenever I look at all that I've been given, whenever I look at, at all of the things that my participation in worship here this morning is a privilege to join the party but also I get to contribute. Now, you may misunderstand me. If I had no microphone, and I often don't, it doesn't change what I just said. I'm just doing one function at this service this morning, and you guys are doing another. And mine is not more important than yours. Whether I'm leading worship with a song, or I'm preaching a lesson, or leading a prayer, or anything else, it's not more important than what you bring to this party. Let's shoot for grateful assemblies. What do you say? Let's close it out with a prayer. 
Heavenly Father, thank you again for loving us and putting us together in a place where we can talk about you and not be persecuted, uh, where we can, uh, you've given us a building to meet in and padded chairs and all the, all the rest of it. Uh, you've given us good music. You've given us good singers to sing them. You've given us so much, and yet it pales in comparison to the party that we've been invited into. And that imagery, the difference between Sinai and Zion, Father, thank you for that. I pray that you'll move in our hearts to make us more and more grateful all the time, to help us to be considerate and to be thoughtful and purposeful whenever we get together on Sundays, that you'll be praised and that our worship will be fueled by gratitude, that we'll go to the heart of worship and that we will please you with everything that you see and hear from us. Father, I pray that you'll transform us, make us better worshipers, Help us to have more joy and to show the world what we're so excited for. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Search me, know me, try me and see.